Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Good day, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining today's edition of Taneo Insights. I'm Kevin Kajawara in New York City. Paul Ryan is with me today. He served as the 54th Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives from October 2015 through January 2019. He also served as Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and Chairman of the House Budget Committee. Not only was he the youngest speaker in nearly 150 years, he was only 28 when first elected to Congress from Wisconsin's first district in 1999. In 2012, as Mitt Romney's running mate, he was the Republican nominee for Vice President. Today, he is, among other things, a partner at Solomir Capital, a professor at Notre Dame University, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's on the boards of the Fox Corporation, Shine Medical Technologies, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, and CSIS. And he is vice chairman of Teneo. So, Speaker Ryan, welcome. Thank you for joining. It's great to have you, uh, have you back on. Good, good um, to be back with you. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Perfect. So I got to start. I got to start by asking what is going on with the Republican conference? I mean, oh, it's going great. <laughs> the last great. several months, uh, this country, and unfortunately, I think the rest of the world has kind of watched this circular firing squad, if you will, uh, with charitable, a uh, charitable word would probably be um, astonishment. And I know you're, I know you're close to Kevin McCarthy and you're, you're a longtime admirer of his political acumen and the like. So like what, what's going on and what went wrong in, yeah. beyond the headlines? Well, yeah, so Kevin was my majority leader, my primary deputy when I was speaker. Um, my chief deputy whip, uh, a great uh, you know, friend of mine, it was, is Patrick McHenry. So obviously I'm, I'm very familiar with the people who got caught up in that drama and in the middle of it. Um, I'd say basically the entertainers took over Congress for a time being. And when you have such a slim majority and you have a handful of nihilists who go to Congress not to legislate, but to be provocative, you know, entertainers, this is what happens. Um, uh, you know, the guy in, um, in Montana, uh, Rosenblum, uh, Rosenblatt, he basically said he prayed for having a narrow majority so that a handful of them could, could hold Congress up over their demands. So you basically have a, a small group of nihilists who came to Congress to entertain, to provoke, to fight, and they're not fighting to win, they're fighting to fight. And so that's kind of what's changed. I mean, I came as a young conservative, ready to fight for my principles and take on the left, and you know, you kind of come in with that sort of zest, but you're fighting to win something, to advance a principle, to pass legislation, to, to, to achieve some policy ground, that's kind of not really what a lot of these people are into doing anymore. They're, they're fighting to fight, to show that they're fighting and that they measure their worth in, in hits and clicks and, and, you know, in provocation and entertainment. Matt Gates is the chief among those. And so Matt Gates is not there to legislate. He's not there to advance principles. He's there to get famous. He's there to entertain. And uh, he also had a personal axe to grind with Kevin. So he was able to trigger a motion to vacate. One person can do it and get, you know, seven people to follow him off that cliff, blew up our majority for a long time. Uh, Patrick stepped in. I had Mac Thornberry in that particular role. The speaker designates somebody if there's a crisis to step in. Patrick was the person to do it. Everybody trusts Patrick McHenry. The Democrats trust Patrick McHenry. Yeah. 
And so Mike Johnson, I think, got it as the fifth pick because the um, these guys aren't conservatives. I wouldn't call these people conservatives. They're populist. Um, so these populists decided, let's go with Johnson because if we don't go to Johnson, then then the bulk of the Republicans and the Democrats are going to get behind, you know, McHenry and, and he will try to govern. So they went with Johnson and Mike. I liked Mike Johnson. He's a very smart guy. He's a he's got a really good temperament. And that means a lot. Temperament's very important. And so now he's got to navigate the same exact problems that put Kevin McCarthy in the same ditch. So just stepping back for one second, though, because I know you're a student of history, and because of the position in, positions that you held, you're an expert on parliamentary process. And and so, you know, I think one of the things that always astonishes a lot of people outside of the Beltway is that, you know, whether it's the White House or Congress, is governed by sort of both law and statute and the like, but also norms and tradition. And, yeah, and, you, know, and you, you've talked, you and I have talked a lot about this difference that you distinguish between the the talkers and the doers, the legislators and the entertainers, you know, um, and and but it, and that's true on both sides. But there's been narrow majorities before. And but this notion that Matt Gates and seven other people can hold, you know, out of 221 in the Republican Congress uh, conference can hold them hostage in that way is a complete abrogation of the norms, to be sure. But there's a really is there nothing that we have done to to rein them in, or is this just the, the math and the way uh, it works? With two things, you could specifically change this rule, which, by the way, was in place from from the beginning. Um, it's actually what got me in the speakership when they were going to do this to John Boehner. Mark Meadows was about to trigger this on Mark on, on John Boehner, yeah. and he resigned in, in anticipation of that. Then we all supported McCarthy. He didn't have the votes, and then I became the consensus choice. And that's kind of what happened when I became speaker. Um, I came in mid midterm, you know, in in October, uh, just like Mike Johnson just came in in October midterm. So you're not probably going to go in and change those rules in the middle of a session because those rules are always adopted at the beginning of a new session. So I don't think that's going to happen. Um, plus, I don't think I don't think um, it's only a majority vote. I don't think he'd, he'd be able to change that. So the other thing is, is get a bigger majority, get more Republicans. so You can wash out those votes. That's the, the benefit I had. I had two benefits as speaker. I mean, I had more, but two particular ones in this case. I never asked for the job. The members knew that it wasn't my ambition. So they knew if they pushed me too hard, I'm happy to throw this job back in their face. That's how they recruited me into it. So they never pushed me too much because they knew I was willing to do lose the job to do what I thought was right. That was a great advantage I had that Kevin didn't have, that Nancy Pelosi didn't have, frankly. Um, the second thing is... I had a better vote cushion. You know, I had, a, I had a nicer vote cushion. So I had people like this, and the same people. I had people like this in the Freedom Caucus that wanted to be rabble-rousers, that wanted to throw hand grenades, that didn't want to be a part of the solution, that wanted to throw sand in the gears. But I had too many votes that it didn't matter what they did because they, they couldn't take down legislation. I never lost a rule, for example. Now they're losing rules like every other week. It's, it's crazy. And the third point I'd make is, yesterday's outrageous tactics becomes today's normal behavior. And so what happens with these sort of populists is they have to come up with something new that is a new outrageous thing so that they can show that they are the greatest fighter among all fighters so that they can burnish this brand. So if you do something that was sort of normalized or in radical yesterday, it's normal today, you got to come up with something new. So it's a one-way ratchet away from normal behavior, and that's how this sort of works. And so the answer is, 
yeah, you can fix the rules in the next Congress. You know, I, I would definitely recommend that, but get a better margin so that you actually, the nihilists cannot run the show like they are today. But that point about the margin, because it, I mean, yes, I, I understand what you're saying, but you also make the point that the single member motion to vacate rule has actually prevailed for most of congressional history. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and it was only sort of during the Pelosi years that they, yeah. they changed that. So yeah, that was I talked to Nancy about that. She was correct, yeah. but it was never employed. That was yeah, Nancy did that because what they did to Boehner, and then actually day two or three after I was speaker, I had dinner with Nancy. We didn't really know each other very well. I know a lot of Democrats, just not her. She basically said to me, look, my friends who know you well, trust you, like you, think you're worthy of this institution's protection, so we will back you, no conditions, on a motion to vacate. So don't worry about that. And that was actually nice to have that in the back of my head. Obviously, Kevin didn't get that deal. But um, but I think what Nancy saw, what they did with Vayner was, I'm not going to let this happen to me. So she fixed it. And then when Kevin, you know, in his 15 votes to get speaker, had to give that back away to the same people who just fragged him, basically. So you, you alluded to this a couple of minutes ago, and I wonder maybe if you could dive into a little bit more and, and, and how you sort of define and differentiate because there's a, there's a little bit of a overlap in the Venn diagrams here between those uh, in the conference who would identify as House Freedom Caucus yeah. and those who are kind of the MAGAs. And I'm just wondering, is, like, is MAGA kind of just an ongoing insurrection um, uh, against basically whatever they, they don't like? I mean, I guess the more fundamental question here is, is you know, who's in the principled opposition versus those who just want to blow the place up? Yeah, I mean, there are cliques and groups. If you wanted to say who are the principal conservatives, it's probably the Republican Study Committee. I was one of the you know founders of that. Uh, uh, the, the Freedom Caucus is more MAGA. Um, I'm from Wisconsin, so I pronounce it MAGA. <laughs> so, and, and that's more populist. You got to understand that's not really rooted into some core conservative principles. It's more purely populist and populism tied to Donald Trump. There is a patina of isolationism in there, um, but but that's not really for some coherent thing other than it's just Trump's preference. So I think you have populists and you have conservatives, and then there are some moderates, not many, but some moderates, or more importantly, I'd say conservatives in moderate districts, like my old district and my successor, conservatives in moderate districts, then conservatives who believe in Burkean conservatism, the principles of conservatism, like the study committee members, the biggest bulk of members, and then they're the populists. And the populists aren't conservatives, they're just purely populist, and that's more MAGA-like. It's more amorphous, more of an amoeba on core principles and policies, and it's more about temperament, having a very fighting to, for the sake of fighting, not for the sake of winning populism. That's what we have. Conservatives in moderate districts, who you would think of as moderates, than conservatives and populists. And that is, those are the basic style of factions we have um, in Congress. They're referred to as the five families. There's about five different groups that these members you know, belong to, but it's basically, that is the, the, those are the three categories I would use. And when you look, and I, we'll get to the 2024 election in a few minutes, but when you look at the, at the array of people running for seats um, in safe seats and in seats yeah. that are being vacated and in those that are competitive, you know, do you see that balance changing just as you look toward, or is it is it going to depend on the coattails of, of, of Trump? Oh, oh, for sure. You mean this the next election? So I we've done pretty well recruiting. Uh, we're getting good people to run. I think there's a new acknowledgement that it's important that we we 
you know, leaders in Congress, the party play in primaries. That hadn't been done for, for a long time because what's happening is you're having um, good principal conservatives retire from Congress and then some populist entertainer re replace them. And so there, there is a swapping out of a principal conservative with just a MAGA populist. And that, that has happened and that has been the trend. Trump clearly is putting his thumb on the scale in the primaries to bring in more lo Trump loyalists. Rhino now doesn't refer to being moderate or liberal on principles. It refers to being low on the fealty meter to Trump. <laughs> That's all that Rhino means. So what, what Trump is trying to do is bring more Trump loyalists. What I hope and think conservatives um, like the Koch Network and others are going to try and do is get conservatives elected to these districts and play in those primaries. So if Trump is our nominee, odds are he'll get more Trump-like MAGA people through the primaries. And the problem with that is we end up losing a lot of those seats. We lost 10 to 15 seats in the last election because of Trump nominees making it through the primaries with his help and then losing the general election because they're unacceptable to general election voters, even in seats Republicans should carry. So that's going to be a challenge. And I do believe that there are new efforts by conservatives to try and play in that space so that these MAGA populists who can't win general elections don't get through the primaries. But with Trump out there, that's going to be a, it's going to be tough. Um, we can talk about, I'm sure you're probably going to go into the presidential election, but I think that's kind of where it comes down to. If Trump is our nominee, it is no doubt in my mind going to cost us House seats. We will lose seats that we otherwise would have won if he is our nominee. And I think you can say the same with the Senate. But the Senate map is so good for us that I still think we win the Senate. It would just be a lower margin than we would otherwise had if we had Trump as our nominee. I want to go back and ask uh, another question about the uh, the new speaker of uh, of the house, who you said a few minutes ago is a is a smart guy and he's got the right kind of temperament. Yeah. Um, now, the point at the uh, at the outset about how young you were when you became speaker, but you were in your I think 16th year in in Congress and you had two major chairmanships under your belt when you took that role, two steps away from the presidency. Um, you know the Mike Johnson. Um, is the least experienced speaker in 140 years, and he's in his sixth year in Congress. So, and he seems, you know, out of step with the majority of the country on a lot of, say, some of the social issues and the like. But in terms of the fights that we're going to talk about here in a minute that are about to come as we enter into the new year, um, but with the same parliamentary procedures hanging over his head that Kevin McCarthy had, What's your what's your read on him and his his ability to to manage and handle these challenges, uh, especially with the rest of the lifespan of this Congress? You know, I haven't spoken to him. I, I you know, I so I haven't talked to Mike. <clears throat> um, my advice would be the only way you're ever really good at this job is if you're willing to lose the job. You can't make good, proper decisions, the right kind of leadership if you're worried about just keeping your job. And, and he's going to come in a moment like that. He's going to be faced with that very soon here. So the deal on his appropriations issues is he success. I think members gave him a pass to have a clean CR with these two tiered CR. They call it laddered one January 19, one February 2nd, four bills January 19, the rest February 2nd. And the, and the choice of those bills with the foreign policy and defense being later made it so that the Democrats would go along with this. And he was able to pass a clean CR to, to get by time. That was good. Members gave him a pass exact same thing Kevin McCarthy did, which triggered the motion to vacate on him. Now, the question is, will they hold Mike Johnson 
accountable for for a situation he inherited, or or will they, you know, um, will they let him give him a pass? Now, I don't see how he can pass appropriation bills that are not at the level that was agreed to in the budget deal that Biden and Kevin McCarthy reached, which a majority of House and Senate Republicans supported. So it's very difficult to see how in this in this in this card game that's coming where the White House and the Senate have more leverage than the House, that they're going to lower those spending levels, particularly when the House can't even pass its own appropriation bills at those lower spending levels. So you sort of have the, the process being held hostage by a handful of members in the House caucus, House Republican conference, who insist on these lower levels that the House can't even pass. So there's no leverage there. So Mike is going to have to make a decision. Do I try to hold out for these lower levels that I can't even demonstrate I can pass through the House um, and then end up having government shutdowns for some period of time to show that we're fighting to kind of exhaust the emotion to then arrive at an appropriations process that reaches that debt limit deal, which was previously agreed to by both parties? Um, so the question is, does he go through a shutdown and end up there or does he end up there earlier? pre-shutdown, which is what McCarthy was trying to do, and does he get vacated for doing that? Or do members give him a pass because he sort of inherited this situation? That's kind of how I see this playing out. Um, like I said, I haven't stopped, spoken to Mike. He hasn't you know, reached out for advice. So my advice is you know where this is going to end up. You know what the right thing to do. Reduce the drama. Show that we can govern and get it done. And then, you know, dare these guys to vacate you because I don't think they will. Because, you know, what are they going to do? They'll probably just go back to the, to the uh, McHenry route, which is what the, the Freedom Caucus guys didn't want in the first place. Right. So the, the question then becomes, we can, go, we can go through, we can get there in a relatively painless way, or we can get there in a really painful way. Yeah. It would be painless or painful. That's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the deal that I think he's trying to get, which is border security for Ukraine, which is a good deal. And, and, and Biden is so vulnerable on this issue. Mike Johnson's doing Joe Biden a favor by leveraging border security, asylum reforms, which anybody in this country with eyes can see is a problem that needs to be fixing a huge political liability for, for Biden. I mean, look at the, the elections around the world. It's, it's this kind of an issue. And so Joe Biden would do himself a favor. Yes, he'll take some heat from his base, but so what? I mean, he's, trying, he's running for re-election. Give House Republicans the border security they're demanding in exchange for Ukraine, and if you if he gets that, then I think it's easier if if Mike banks that win to have a smoother appropriations process so that the country looks better, the country gets appropriations gets funded, and we don't look like you know we're the country that can't shoot straight. So I think it's in Biden's interest to give on that so that Mike can bank that win, use that political capital to have a smoother appropriations process. That's what if I were talking to Joe Biden, that's what I'd tell him to do. Yeah, and to be fair, I mean, it seemed like as we were going through this in round one most recently that there was that kind of tacit acknowledgement out of the White House about and, yeah. and a, a willingness to go down that path. Do you, I think they're heading in that direction. Let's just see if they do it. The, the problem in these things is they try to splice it and try to like muddle it so they actually don't get the right kind of policies, but a little bit in the right direction so they can wink, wink, nod, nod to their base. We gave it to them in paper, but not really in practice. Just do the right thing, get the border secured, do those things. It needs to be done. I think probably most Democrats agree with this anyway, just not the progressive base that's upset with Joe Biden for a multitude of reasons. Right. I want to, you know, I want to move on beyond the Republican thing here and, and, and move into more fiscal policy. But I want to 
ask one final question of you because it it harks back to where we were the last time you were on here. We're in the middle of um, you know the whole January sixth investigations and the um, uh, and the congressional hearings and the like. How do you think? Because you're a student of history, where how do you think we're going to look back on, or how will history regard people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and people of that their ilk? And maybe it's just just the two of them. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean they're friends of mine. I think they called out. Look, Trump's not a conservative; he's an authoritarian narcissist. So I think they basically called him out for that. He's a populist authoritarian narcissist. So historically speaking, all of his tendencies are, you know, basically where narcissism takes him, which is whatever makes him popular, makes him feel good at any given moment. And he, and he doesn't think in, in, in classical liberal conservative terms, he thinks in, in an authoritarian way. And he's been able to get a, a, a big chunk of the Republican base to follow him because, you know, he's the culture warrior. And so I think Adam and Liz um, stepped out of the, the flow and called it out and, um, you know, paid for it, paid for it with their careers. But I think, again, back to my earlier point, I don't think you can be really very good at these jobs unless you're willing to lose these jobs. And there has to be some line, some principle that is so important to you that you're just not going to cross so that when you're brushing your teeth in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror, you like what you see. Um, I think Adam and Liz are brushing their teeth liking what they see. Um, and I think there are a lot of people in Congress, good friends of mine, who would take the vote back if they could. Because I think a lot of these members of Congress, you know, like on the second impeachment, they thought Trump was dead. They thought after General Fix, he wasn't going to have a comeback. He was dead. So they figured, I'm not going to take this heat. I'm going to vote against this impeachment because he's gone anyway. But what's, what's ha happened is he's been resurrected. Um, there's lots of reasons for that, but he has been. So I think there's a lot of people who already regret not, you know, you know, getting him out of the, out of the, out of the way when, when they could have, you know, like an impeachment. Um, so I think history will be kind to those people who saw what was happening and called it out, even though it was at the expense of their personal well-being. So if you could just take off your purely political hat and keep on your philosophical hat for a second. I mean, you're you're a known philosophical fiscal hawk. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, um, but it's it, it's within the realm of possibilities, certainly, despite what you were saying earlier about some of the potential um, disadvantages of uh, for, for Republican candidates with Trump at the top of the ticket. But it's it's conceivable that Republicans could um, uh, could take control of both houses and the White House um, in, yeah. in 2024. And I think we have to admit that, you know, despite the religion that many have found now, when parties, either party has unified control of government, they tend to like to spend money and um, and to issue debt to uh, to do it. I mean, Trump ran up big deficits and, you know, added what, $7.8 trillion to the uh, to the debt load. So how do we, yeah. in a non, you know, how do we get out of this cycle to the extent that it is a, a risk? And we are seeing that reflect to some degree in yeah. international interest in the bond market, right? I think about this, I, I texted a friend of mine last night who runs a $2.7 trillion fixed income portfolio of BlackRock. They ask him, I ask him all the time about treasury markets. The treasury is floating $626 billion this week in bills, bonds, and notes of the treasury department. Um, other sovereigns are doing the same thing. So it's, it's really getting harder to float our debt at, at, at affordable rates. 
So I'm very worried about the future of the dollar. You have the digitization challenge and, and, and you know, comp competition coming. So the dollar is under duress because of our own bad fiscal policy and because of technology and, and, and com competitive products that are being put out there in the marketplace. So the next president has got to challenge, take on this issue. If we have unified control, like you said, Kevin, Donald Trump is a populist who is always, and I've had many personal conversations with him about this, been against entitlement reform. You cannot get America out of the coming debt crisis that it has coming if you do not reform our entitlement programs. Now, the good thing about these entitlement programs, which, which I refer to as a social contract, health and retirement security for Americans, mostly older Americans and all low-income Americans, you cannot get out of this debt trap that we're going into without reforming those programs. But the good news is this. You can reform them in such a way that it, that it grandfathers those in a near retirement so they have no changes, make it different for, for those of us in the X gen on down, like you and myself, and you can make the programs work better because there's a lot we've learned in the 21st century since these programs were written in the middle of the 20th century. So the good news is if you reform these programs, you can save these programs, make them work better, and dodge a debt crisis. The problem is the Trump populists don't want to do that because it requires principled change and communicating truth to people, and they're not willing to do that because that, that, that risks being unpopular. So the answer to your question, I know that I'm winding up an answer here, is an entitlement commission. I think the only answer here, and I didn't like these before because I, I thought it was Congress outsourcing its work. I was on Bowles Simpson. It was doomed to fail to begin with because it wasn't a statutory commission. So I think a statutory commission, and there's a lot of people in Congress pushing for this. There are conservatives in Congress. There are fiscal conservatives still in Congress. The mo most of the conservatives, most of the members of, of the Republican conference in the House and the Senate are conservatives. And they believe a fiscal commission is the right way to go. So it's gotta be a commission that brings a, an entitlement reform plan to bring solvency to these programs, to, to bring down our debt crisis, to bring down our debt. And it's gonna be statutory, so Congress has to vote on it, cannot dodge the vote. I would say have it deliver the results in 2025, so it's not litigated during a presidential election and demagogued. And I really think that that's the way out of this thing. So a fiscal commission like the Greenspan Commission in the early 80s that saved Social Security for a generation, something like that, that the House and the Senate has to vote on, can't duck, and that then a president signs. If you, if you have that lined up, that's the best chance of getting this done. Trump's a one-termer if he gets elected. Um, I still don't think he gets elected. I, I pray that we beat him in the primary. I think there's a chance of that, frankly. And, and, and then whoever we have as president signs that bill, gets America to dodge a debt crisis, and resuscitates and saves the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Oh, it's not going to do that. Yeah, that's the portion of this conversation. But, um, so, but it takes time to have that commission, put it together, have its results, and come up with something. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, that whatever that's going to be, seeing it out there over the horizon and what they're talking about and so on and so forth, it's going to have to be validated by the electorate. Now, we have seen in, in many instances, like in Europe, as an example, where um, you know, some of these some of these ideas like raising the retirement age and whatnot are are mooted and we can see the immediate blowback at the yeah. uh, at the at the ballot box and i think even a lot of older americans who vote as we know in disproportionately high numbers even if you make that argument to them this your grandfathered in this is going to impact your kids or your grandkids 
there's like this, we don't trust you. There's a slippery yeah. slope. If we yeah. give an inch, you're gonna take a mile. So how do, this requires leadership. Yeah. How do we get that, especially if the guy at the top is unwilling to, to make that sale? Yeah, here's a problem. Both of the guys at the top, Biden and Trump, are unwilling yeah. to make that sale. They're, they're demagoguing it. They're playing, you know, old baby boomer populism. Yeah. So I, I think it's got to be driven by Congress. I think Mike Johnson and Mitch McConnell should insist upon, and there are Democrats who are with them on this, in some bill this year, insist upon an entitlement commission being formed. Then you go through the election where you don't have the specifics, and the entitlement commission's patiently doing its work and then delivers a result. The alternative is get it done now, have the commission deliver its results in five months. I think that's, I mean, that would be great if that happened. I just don't see that happening that fast because I don't see Joe Biden willing to put his neck on the line and doing that. But the one thing I learned in entitlement reform is pass it fast, get it in law, so that you can show to the American people the horror story that they thought was going to happen didn't actually happen. But that's probably asking too much to do it with this president in this current year. So that's why I think you got to leverage what you've got to get it in place so that it materializes a result in 2025 so you can put it in place. Because frankly, we have to do this. Otherwise, we're going to have a debt crisis. Everybody gets hurt. Seniors get hurt. The poor get hurt. The people who need the government the most get hurt the first. And so that is why doing nothing, which brings about the insolvency to Medicare and Social Security, is not a viable option. Unfortunately, that is the that's the plan for Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Do nothing and court the insolvency of these programs. I believe the political high ground is that if you reform these programs, you save them for today's seniors and you have you dodge the debt crisis so we can save our economy and preserve the mission of these programs for the next generation by reforming them with lessons we've learned since we started these programs in the middle in the middle of the 20th century. So I think it's pretty easy to communicate that. You just got to have people willing to lean in and do that. So um, we're half hour into this conversation. I think you've suitably depressed most of the audience. Um, so let's try to find some. Let's try to find some good news. I'm, I'm wondering where you think. You know, you you have talked a lot about again the legislators versus the entertainers alike. But where do you see Republicans and Democrats? Where is there some common ground that they can they can get to work together, or where they already are? I mean, I'll give you a perfect. Yeah. I met recently with uh, with Chairman Gallagher and ranking member Christian Murphy on the on the House China Committee. I mean, you know, they don't see eye to eye on on everything, but I feel like both of them are principled guys who bring intelligence and bring, you know, understanding of the subject and they're open minded to the table. Same thing with the with the uh, with the members of the Intelligence Committee. But these are also committees that have been deliberately over time tried to keep out of the political fray uh, yeah. to some, some degree. Obviously, your kind of baby, the uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, some of that is uh, is going to expire. I got to imagine even Democrats don't want to be raising taxes. And so so are, there are areas where you can where you can find comedy. Yeah, well, you just identified them. So Raj Krishnamurthy and Mike Gallagher are two bright lights in both the Democrat and House Republican conference. Smart members, conscientious, capable. I believe that they are on the cusp of forging a bipartisan, durable China policy. And I think given that we're in election year, <clears throat> I don't think Democrats want to be out hawked on China because they know that's politically perilous for them. And on the flip side of it, you want to make sure that we have smart decoupling policies so that we're not needlessly hurting our economy in dealing with the, the, the challenge from China. 
I think those members are gonna are gonna help articulate a good durable policy. If they bring bills to the floor, they're gonna be bipartisan. And that means we'll make bipartisan law there. I think on um, future-proofing our economy from, from new, interesting, innovative, but challenging technologies is also an area where you're gonna have bipartisan support. AI, quantum computing, the CHIPS Act was bipartisan. So I think you're gonna have, and those, those are you know, future technology and challenges that come with that, you know, the downside risk of AI, but also challenges with China and, and, and that risk. That's gonna be bipartisan, I think. So I think there are some bipartisan sweet spots out there. Israel is bipartisan. Ukraine, believe it or not, is bipartisan. So the challenge, Taiwan and arming Taiwan is bipartisan. So the, 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 the foreign policy fires that are burning out there have by and large bipartisan support to our response to those. The future technological challenges, by and large bipartisan response to those. The, the stablecoin bill that Patrick McHenry got out of his committee is bipartisan. So I, I think you're gonna, there are bipartisan things out there. Um, it's just these other issues that are hyperpartisan. But no matter who's the president and no matter who's running Congress, I think those issues are baskets of bipartisan um, support. How about, and you brought this up earlier in our conversation, um, the immigration issue, because it seems to me that, um, and, and how the, the extreme progressive wing of the Democratic Party has kind of held the president hostage. Because it seems to me that the electorate is more, isn't against immigrants or immigration as much as it is against this kind of out of control situation. In fact, there are actually very good examples out there. I mean, Australia, as an example, has one of the strictest border controls of any country, yet it has a very high percentage of, uh, of immigrants um, in their overall population mix, and people are happy about that. So how, how can you, how can we break this impasse? Yeah, I mean, they're an easier country because their border's an ocean. Um, so, you know, but Canada has a good immigration system, which they have a point system where their, their visas are given based on economic need. Uh, I, think, I think the sweet spot is a sound border security bill that secures the border, that reforms the asylum laws, keeps, you know, remain in Mexico in place or puts it back in place, but also preserves, you know, nuclear family immigration, but converts the non-nuclear family immigrant visas to economic visas for what the economy needs. And I believe in this 21st century economy, you can have um, increased legal immigration in a way that does not depress Americans' wages or take jobs away from Americans because of the boomers retiring, because our birth rates aren't quite what they need to be. You can supplement our job um, scarcity with immigration. We have more job openings than people willing to take those jobs. So you combine that with good welfare reforms that make sure that every able-bodied American is working and you can get our growth rate of their economy uh, back up. The CBO is projecting the growth rate of the U.S. economy for the next 30 years to be half of what it was for the last 30 years solely because of labor supply. So you can address that issue in a bipartisan way. Conservatives will like it. Moderates will like it. Progressives won't. But, but I think that the bulk of Americans are where I, what I just said. The, the, the problem is that the politics are so ugly for either side that you need to have a president willing to spend political capital to do that. We thought we had Trump there. He said yes on a Thursday, then said no on a Tuesday, changed his mind. We couldn't get it done. What I just described, Biden seems to be, be too beholden to his progressive base. So you need a president willing to spend political capital to get this done. But there is a mix of policies that can solve this immigration problem secure our borders, stop fentanyl, stop terrorists from coming here, obey our laws, 
and help our economy without hurting American workers. You can do that with good immigration policy. And I believe this is going to happen because it has to happen. We have no choice but to make sure that it happens. And issues like that are, are that's how Congress works. They become so intractable, they become so impossible until they're not, until an issue is ready to break and, and move it forward. If we do just those two things we've just talked about, fix our immigration laws, fix our entitlement programs to prevent a debt crisis, we're going to have an awesome 21st century. We're going to get our growth rate back up close to trend, 3% GDP growth, we'll, and we will have another great American century. If you just do those two things, I think that's going to be pretty amazing. I think we're going to beat China. It's going to be it's going to be a bumpy ride, but I think we're going to beat China because they're weaker than we than everybody thinks they are, and we because of our freedoms and our innovation are stronger. But if we fix this, our stop a debt crisis, solve entitlements, get immigration and labor supply back to where it needs to be, we're going to be awesome. We're going to be in good shape. It just you know, takes on, leadership. Right now, we don't have that. On, on this point, um, and just to finish up, last question on the kind of bipartisanship front here. Um, but you brought up the competition against China, and that is one element in the back of the minds of things like IRA and things like the yeah. Science Act and even an infra infrastructure bill. And there are many um, uh, who are crying foul about the amount of money, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, you know, as the money is appropriated and the shovels go in the ground, the employment is coming, and this is going to be transformational in a lot of in a lot of different ways. And, you know, eighty percent of the clean tech and semiconductor investments being made are happening in red districts. So is this is the implementation of this something where there actually can be some bipartisanship? Or if Republicans get complete control of House, White House, and Senate, is that going to be the number one thing that they try to repeal? Yeah, I don't think they'll have the votes to repeal. I just don't think they'll extend. They'll let them expire. I, I spent a lot of this as chairman of Ways and Means. Most of the stuff you described are tax credits. And the way these tax credits work, they're placed in service tax credits. So if you if you place in service a, a windmill farm, you get the tax credit for 10 years. You're not going to retroactively repeal that stuff. So I think you'll let that stuff run off. And, and by the way, I don't, I'm not a fan of that bill. It's subsidizing yesterday and today's technology. Honestly, I think the smarter way to go is just tax carbon. And I think you could, I actually put a, a proposal at AEI with uh, some other economists Kyle Palmeru and Alex Brill, other with two economists, saying we can lower our, our corporate tax rate in America to 15%, go to a cash flow tax, which is like an, a consumption tax with a carbon tax on top. You put American businesses in the most competitive place they could possibly be in the global in the global economy, and you can voter adjust a tax on carbon so that you can actually send price signals on carbon so that innovators, tomorrow's technology can be incentivized to decarbonize versus this crony capitalism tax and spend scheme that the IRA is, which is subsidizing today and yesterday's technology. Will that technology be deployed? Yeah, of course. If you throw money at windmills and solar panels, you're gonna get more of them. And I'm not saying they're, they're terrible things to do. I'm just saying, I don't think that's the future for decarbonization. I think nuclear and, and maybe fusion, those kinds of things, those new technologies, that's the future for decarbonizing the planet. And the best way to get to that future is not subsidizing other stuff. It's it's sending the right price signals so that the private sector and the innovator can solve this problem. And by the way, if we America do that, I think we'll put the world on on a flywheel of this kind of of regime, and we'll all be better off. I'd rather tax China and India carbon coming into our country than you know have this crony capitalism that we have right now. So that's my own view on that subject. But to answer your specific question, I don't think we're not going to have a giant majority. 
whoever wins the majority, it's not going to be big. There are just too few seats in play. So you're not going to have the kind of votes probably to, re to go and retroactively repeal these things. You just will let them run off is what I think will happen. So I want to pivot now to the, um, to the electorate. Um, and uh, it seems like they are in a pretty foul mood. Uh, on a whole host of subjects, but let me set the stage here for just for just one second, because yeah. in, in the face, you know, in, um, in the face of this is all happening in the face of actually some pretty interesting economic tailwinds here, right? Third quarter GDP was released this morning, 5.2 percent, fastest in two years, right? Unemployment is at its lowest, at 50-year low. Um, wages are growing. Inflation is is coming down. It was 3.2 percent last year. June of 2022 is 9.1%. Gas prices have been coming down 70 straight days now. Um, interest rates are lower. You know, more people saying that perhaps the Fed has topped out, maybe could even start um, easing in mid-2024. Uh, mid You've got inflation and unemployment below 4%. Very, very rare to have that sustained. But people are, and it, Republicans and Democrats alike, and every way, every which way you slice demographically, people are negative on the economy. But they are acting like they have more confidence, right? Yeah. Money, they're traveling, they're changing jobs like they have confidence. How do you explain this kind of disconnect? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's some pent up um, demand from, from COVID lockdowns, and there was a savings glut uh, from COVID, and that's still being spent off. And if you talk to the big banks, They'll tell you just that the, the savings is still higher than it was before COVID, and people are spending down those savings. Um, but look at it, look, yes, inflation is decelerating, but the purchasing power of your money is so much worse than it was just a couple of years ago, and you're feeling it. It's really expensive to buy a house. The the 30-year rates are are at levels people haven't seen since you know the the early 80s. So I think they see the cost of getting ahead in America is higher. Um, the wage gains, the real wage gains we we received after the tax cuts and jobs act, frankly, before COVID were were pretty impressive, especially for the lowest two quintile earners. But now that's been reversed. So people have fallen farther behind because of inflation. Those those inflationary increases have outpaced their wage increases. So people do not feel better off. And they look at the world. They look at Israel. They look at Ukraine. They look at all of this 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 turmoil, and they don't feel good. And if you look at the polls, do you think your kids are going to be better off than you? They say no. Do you think the country's on the right track or the wrong track? They say the wrong track. So, yes, you're right. I mean, we've sort of defied uh, economic gravity by dodging a recession. And I do give the Fed some credit for that, for sure. Um, but I think we have proven we've got a strong, resilient economy. It is, it is a very resilient economy. It's a testament to America. It's a testament to some good policies that have been put in place in the past, I would say. But Americans don't look at the future and see see something bright. Um, they don't look at the mortgage rates. They don't look at what it still costs to, to buy groceries and gas and see positive things. So that's what it is. And that's not going to change before the election. I just do not think Biden is going to be running. By the way, most projectors, pr projections show the economy slowing down, um, you know, because of because of all this monetary policy that's been put in place. There's a lag to that, as we all know. So even if the Fed tops off, which, by the way, the bond markets probably need that to be able to sell our bonds, if the Fed tops off, there's still a lag for all of that. And I don't think you're going to have in 2024 um, a good economy. I think it's going to decelerate. And yet, while it's the economy, stupid, has been sort of a political axiom in this country since Bill Clinton. Yeah. Uh, 
the the we, we the, the Democrats did pretty well in the midterm elections and in this latest um, uh, mid, uh, you know, off-year election uh, in early early November, despite that economic um, sort of malaise or or or, or agony, um, suggesting that everything from the culture wars to you know the Trump effect is has been has been at their back. Um, how do you see that balance then, as we head into 2024? I think that's right. I think, and the culture only has so much play in it, which is really a base play. It's not a majority play. And Trump is death to us for politics. He just kills our seats. He kills our chances. So, um, look, I was very excited to see uh, Americans for Prosperity make a decision. They ended up endorsing Nikki Haley. I just want to. I want somebody that's not named Donald Trump to be our nominee. They decided to throw in with Nikki Haley, which is she's got very good momentum. AFP, I would argue, and I've been in politics a long time, is just as strong from a grassroots perspective, from a technical you know, voter ID perspective as the Republican Party in many states. So Nikki Haley just inherited a grassroots army that rivals the Republican Party in many states. And I believe this is gonna give her a ton of gas in her tank to, to, to perhaps consolidate support to be that non-Trump viable candidate. And the reason I think that that's also, you know, pretty compelling to answer your question is he beats Joe Biden by 13 points. If Nikki Haley gets the nomination, we're going to have like a, a 1980s Reagan election. And then we will have that unified government you described, but with a competent conservative president. If, if Trump gets the nomination, my guess is he still loses to Biden and he's going to cost us more seats again. We still probably get the Senate because the map is just so good for us, but maybe by one or two seats. But if Nikki is the nominee, we're getting we're we're improving our house seats. Dave McCormick, you know, Hub D in Wisconsin, they win those races, and we have a really good majority with a great president. So honestly, I think we got a I got there's an upside case here that is good for America. And and by the way, unified conservative government with a with a with a competent, you know, ethical, honest, moral person as our president, that's pretty good. That's gonna send good signals, good signals to our allies, good signals to the economy. We're gonna tackle entitlements. So I, I could see a really good story coming out of this, but we got to get past Donald Trump and my party. The Democrats aren't doing them any favors by having Biden as their nominee. He's the only person Trump could conceivably beat. And so they're not doing themselves any favor, but I think that's just what it is. All right. So I want to come back to the election uh, here in just, a, uh, in just a minute. And by the way, in addition to the, um, to the AFP backing that you're in for audiences uh, benefit, yeah. talking about the that's inside baseball stuff, but it's a big deal. Yeah, right? big deal. But interestingly, also just this morning at the New York Times Dealbook um, Summit, uh, Jamie Dimon um, encouraged people to back uh, back Nikki Haley um, uh, in, in, in an interview there. But I, I want to ask one last question just about the electorate. Recently um, on this program, I had Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal, who had just put out this book about declining trust in American institutions, you know, everything from institutions of higher learning, the media, you know, corporate America, on and on and on, but most importantly, government, of course. And, um, you know, what was interesting, though, to me is, is that Americans' faith in government and their trust in government is, you know, continues to bounce along some really, really low numbers, uh, including of the Supreme Court now, which is typically ridden high. So only the, only the military rides high now. But still, Americans are coming out and voting in record numbers. And primarily, they're voting for incumbents. How do you square that circle? 
it's the old adage, <clears throat> I don't like Congress, but I like my congressman. Um, <clears throat> that happens all the time. And that's always, I think that's always going to happen. Incumbents <clears throat> are more likely to get reelected than not. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, look, I think, and I, Jerry Baker's been writing some interesting stuff on this. He just had a really interesting op-ed about Republicans in the journal uh, yesterday, I think. I, I think what you have happening is moral relativism accelerated with digitization. And that is leading to a deinstitutionalizing of society, of free societies, particularly a deinstitutionalization of, of government. So the question is, can the right kind of leadership be applied to revive faith in our institutions and in our governments? And that means you have to have honest, ethical, and competent government. Joe Biden was supposed to be that guy. The moderates in Wisconsin that voted for him thought he was. He wasn't. He gave the progressives the keys of the cars, and he governed like a progressive, which is not where the country is. Donald Trump is a train wreck, and if he becomes president, you know, it's predictable results. But if we get somebody other than Biden and other than Trump elected um, that is not thrown in with the progressives, I'd say somebody center, I prefer a, a conservative, but let's just send a right government I believe that kind of leadership, Reagan-esque type leadership, just like when he replaced Jimmy Carter, when you had this kind of malaise in those days, you can rebuild these things. People can make differences. And yes, we have the digitization of moral, moral relativism where each of us park ourselves in our information cul-de-sacs and, and, and we, we are more fragmented in society. I do think there is polarization fatigue that is kicking in and Americans are sick and tired of problems going unsolved. And, and, and problems mounting, compromising their faith and confidence in the future, as we just discussed, have. But the right leadership can address these things, combine people, inspire people, unify people, and, and solve problems. And if we can do that, like Reagan did in the 80s, but in today's digital age, I think you can get ourselves back in a virtuous cycle. You fix these problems like we discussed, you can get America back on track. You can confront China. The free world can stand up against tyrants and authoritarians in the 21st century and win the day. This is all, the good thing about this is it's all within our own control. We're not like some country needing some other country to do something for us to succeed. We can do it ourselves. It's within our ability. So that's why I still have hope. That's why I think, you know, we can, we can do this. Look, Churchill said the Americans can be counted upon to do the right thing, but only after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. He also said democracy is the worst possible form of government, except for all the other forms of government. So the point is, it's sloppy and messy, but we usually get it right. I think that's where we're going. I hope we get it right by, by getting look, Nikki Haley perfect. Let's get her in the White House and, and with a good Republican Congress. I think that would be wonderful. And I think that gets America on the right track. Somebody who's not going to kick our allies in the shins, but are going to back up uh, democracy and freedom in the world, rebuild our economy, solve our problems. That's what the country's waiting for. And I think that, that that's why I think Nikki Haley leads this thing by 13 points and would smoke Biden um, if she gets the nomination. The question is, can we step out of our own way and not nominate an authoritarian populist narcissist like Trump um, and actually win an election? And if Biden wins because he has Trump as his opponent, I worry we're just going to muddle along like we are. OK, so I want to ask three things based on what you just said. So uh, the last time you were on here, which was September of 2022, um, you made some news, and uh, apparently it was news because we, we got some uh, real blowback on this. But you said 
Donald Trump will not be the party's nominee, and more importantly, that the party needed essentially a divorce from him. And I think you have um, reconfirmed your sentiment on that. Um, on sentiment, that. Yeah. Um, and you're very favorable on on Nikki Haley. You haven't spoken about the others in the uh, in, in the Republican pantheon uh, at the moment. But my question, I guess, is we are what something like 45 days away right now from the Iowa caucuses, and despite that boost from the the Koch network, and despite some of the big Republican money and and, yeah. and businesses getting be, behind her, so it's a it's a big hole to dig out of. And you know, and 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 DeSantis has had his own grand ground game in Iowa to be to be sure. So Talk about the pathway here to the nomination of a non-Trump candidate. Yeah. So, uh, look, I would be just as happy. I would be happy if, if Ron or Chris, Christie and, and, and DeSantis got the nomination. So I'm, I'm for somebody not named Trump getting the nomination. Ron has the best ground game in Iowa. But now that you have AFP with Nikki, that, that's going to rival that DeSantis ground game. But AFP has a ground game not only in Iowa, but in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, in Nevada, in Wisconsin, very much so. And all over the place. So I think that just gave her a ton of jet fuel. That's going to help her a lot. So if he, I had to pick a growth stock in the Republican primary, it's definitely Nikki Haley. Um, and so, look, yeah, Trump is, is a prohibited favorite in the national polls. You look at the state polls, it's a little tighter, but a lot can happen. There's a lot of momentum. Is he likely the nominee? Yes, I think you have to sort of concede that point. But I don't think it's guaranteed. And I think the idea that she just beats Biden so handedly, um, he's going to be a, probably a convicted felon by the time he's, you know, running for president as a, as a nominee, just makes it much more likely we lose with this guy. I still think he does lose to Biden. And I don't want to do that. I don't want Biden to get another run. I don't want Donald Trump to be president either. So I think Nikki's got the best shot, but we'll see in Iowa. I hope people consolidate and get out of the race fast after Iowa. And I do believe because I think it's the last poll I saw is more than half of Republicans want somebody other than Trump to be our nominee. So if you can tap that, uh, I think I think there's something there. So I really do still believe that it is not inevitable that Donald Trump becomes our nominee. He has there are so many problems with that that people rightfully acknowledge um, that I think we can beat him. The question is, can the consolidation behind one candidate occur to do that? I see that beginning with Nikki Haley. Look. Like, I, I don't, again, I'm not trying to dispel Christie and DeSantis, but we got to have one person. And I honestly think it's going to end up becoming her because she's just so strong and doing so well. Putting aside the anybody but Trump sentiment and the fact that she's got momentum and she's a, a viable candidate, potentially even as Jamie Dimon sort of suggested today, that somebody that Democrats um, yeah. and, 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 and moderates could, could look at. But, you know, you've been very clear over the course of this conversation of where your philosophical uh, mindset is and your political mindset is. Is it also fair to say that to people like you and, and your running mate, Mitt Romney, and the, does, does she align most closely to your own philosophy yeah. or are the I, other candidates? I don't want to do anything to harm her candidacy. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> so, yeah, we all know each other pretty well. So I'm a big fan. I've always been a fan of hers. I chose her to be the... Um, to do the response to Obama and his State of the Union uh, back in like 2015 or 2016, because back then when she was governor of South Carolina, I thought this is a star among us. So I've always thought that. I still think that. Um, I can't speak to her philosophy other than the position she has taken in this with respect to our allies, with respect to our foreign policy threats, um, her, her strength on knowing that entitlement reform is absolutely necessary to save these programs, preserve these programs, to prevent a debt crisis. 
yeah, my my those policies track with what I want to see happen and what I want to see a president advance. The um, you know, you've certainly <laughs> acknowledged that there is definitely a pathway to Trump being president. It is. I think it's, if Biden shows a senior moment, I mean, he's clearly in cognitive decline. If he shows like in a very demonstrable public way that he's just too sen senile for the job, Biden voters don't become Trump voters. Biden voters just stay home and Trump can win on that. I just don't think Trump can for office to begin with. That's my point. If he becomes president, what do you think a second term looks like? And this is my point to my fellow conservatives who flirt with him, which is he's not going to get anything done. He's going to be so damn toxic. And who who is competent is going to join his cabinet that could get confirmed. I don't think he's going to be able to stack a good cabinet. Um, I don't think he's going to have good people around him. His pattern of behavior is he, he trashes the people who work for him. So he gets down to the people who could never get a job in the White House other than being with him and being a total sycophant. So my, my, my fear is he will not have a capable government. Um, his, he, he's a, you know, he's a, he's an authoritarian narcissist, you know, he's, so I just don't think he, he'll be so toxic that anything big you want to get done in government requires some bipartisanship. You know, they have a filibuster in the Senate. Chuck Schumer has a say, even if he's the minority leader. So I just don't think the conservative agenda we want, we could even pass if he becomes president. So that's, that's the, the argument I make to my fellow conservatives who flirt with Trump. The elected people are more afraid of, of Trump than they're for him. And so the question is, can we message the voters, the voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, that you may love them. But by the way, there's a there's a better there's a better choice here. Somebody who who shares your values, who has your policies and who can win and win well. That's a pretty compelling argument. And so I still think that that's a good argument. I make that argument more than that he's unfit for office, because if you tell a MAGA voter that, that Trump's unfit for office, it's basically an insult to them. It's not effective at persuading people to not vote for Trump. That's why I don't really use that argument very often. But I still think there's a great practical argument to be had. And, and, and that is, look at the polls. Look at Nikki Haley head to head against Biden versus Trump or even DeSantis against a Biden. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's like a 10 point difference. So I think that's still pretty compelling. Bob, Bob Vanderplatz, great guy in Iowa, is making really compelling arguments. Kim Reynolds, who's endorsed Ron Davis, she's a great governor. She'd make a great VP. She's making these kinds of arguments. I think Chris Sununu is making those arguments in New Hampshire. So I think these voters are being communicated to in this way. And that's why I still think there's a reasonable, there's a plausible, plausible chance that he does not get the nomination. Do you think you're going to be going to Davos next month and you'll be meeting with and talking to a lot of corporate leaders from around the world? You just killed my political viability by saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Which I don't need it. That's I'm good. Yeah. I guess, you know, I've been meeting with a number of, uh, of very senior corporate and, and institutional investors, state investor uh, from, from overseas of late. And, you know, by virtue of my day job, we talk a lot about geopolitics, obviously. And with everything going on in Ukraine and Russia, Israel, uh, Gaza, um, and of course, uh, China, Taiwan, et cetera, and US-China relations, they will all say to me that the number one geopolitical risk that they are worried about in 2024 is by far the US presidential election. It is absolutely consequential and that people in four or five, six states 
So have come down to a couple hundred thousand votes are going to impact the lives of 8 billion people around the world. It's that important. Are you saying, in a sense, or I guess, what are you going to tell those people who asked yeah. put that question to you over there? Because part of me hears that, you know what, Trump is so toxic that if he wins the election, he'll be, he won't get anything done. So, you know, traditionally the street loves it when nothing happens in Washington. Yeah, um, yeah. Right? So are you being reassuring or how are you, what are you going to be yeah. saying? So I get this question a lot because in my day job as, as, as vice chair Taneo, I talk to Fortune 500 CEOs every single week and these are the questions I get. Um, I say a couple of things. Remember, and I tell this to foreigners, our Congress is, is we, have, we have three separate co-equal branches of government, meaning our Congress is extraordinarily important and, and we're not a parliamentary system. So no matter who the president is, the question is, does America have a durable consensus on some critical issues that, 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 that's important to them? And I'd say the answer is yes. We have, a, we have critical mass of, on, on China. We are building a bipartisan China policy, which is we are going to be decoupling from China. Hopefully it's intelligent decoupling, but we're going to be decoupling and we're going to stand up to authoritarians, to techno tyrannies uh, in America. And they, need to make that, and they need to make that choice. They need to be on the right side of decoupling with China for their own sake and for their own security. Number two, there is a durable bipartisan consensus toward our allies in Ukraine and obviously in Israel and to support Taiwan. So that's gonna happen no matter what. Congress is gonna pass legislation doing what I just said, no matter who's running Congress, no matter who's president. And if Trump's president, it's getting to his desk. So that's the point I try to make, which is don't discount the durability of consensus in Congress. And then when it comes to future-proofing our economies on, on critical intelligence, AI is a question I get all the time. We're going to be forging a bipartisan AI policy, hopefully, which really facilitates and encourages and leaves room for innovation and startups, not just big companies getting bigger, um, with the rock proper guardrails to, to guard against downside risk and coordinating with our allies on the same. Same goes for digital currencies and all of the rest. So all of these things we are now just talking about, they have durable bipartisan consensus in Congress that will be reached, reached at. Even if my party wins everything, you still got to govern with Democrats because of the filibuster. So that's my argument and my message to them. No matter who wins this thing, what, what the point is, these issues uh, that are really important to them have a lot of consensus. Like, okay, what's the tax rate going to be? And, you know, things on the side, they're going to be partisan fights, but on those critical issues, that people around the world are concerned about, there is an American consensus that will be arrived at. So my last question, and I want to thank you for indulging me. I've gone over time here. But my last question goes back to something you were talking about, polarization. Because I think you and I would both agree that, you know, our founders were some pretty enlightened people who came up with some incredibly um, elegant and flexible documents. Some of those, though, are, you know, we never or saw where we are today with things like um, social media being able to yeah. amplify yeah. And all, all, all of this. And, you know, some 20 odd times we've been able to go in and adjust those founding, uh, those foundational documents. We haven't been able to do that, probably not able to do that anytime soon. But we've had other moments of extreme polarization in this country. We have gotten through those. The arc of American history tends to bend toward justice and progress. But also, it tends to happen with some extreme violence. Between those moments of extreme polarization and when we get back on track, 
How concerned are you about that? And what can we do to kind of get through this extreme polar moment? Yeah, I mean, look, um, what I don't want to see happen in the conservative movement is us to deviate from our constitutional principles, which is what this um, populism, this authoritarian populism does. Um, I do worry about authoritarianism, like Trump is proposing, um, as, as a populist movement. Um, but I still think that it's less ideological and more a cult of personality. So I think the, the, the funk that my party is in is kind of tied to a guy, Donald Trump, who, you know, he's either leaving the scene in, in months or at least in a handful of years, in four years, five years. So I still think we get past this moment. Um, do I worry about violence? I do worry about, you know, what really alarms me is this all this anti-Semitism that has propped up lately. Um, this pro, these pro-Hamas Marxists, I don't even think these kids know what the hell river they're talking about when they say from the river to the sea. So I, I am alarmed that the social media, particularly TikTok, you know, Bin Laden's letter to America promoting Hamas, I think those things are threats that are, that are unraveling our cohesion in society. They need to be dealt with. Um, particularly that's the TikTok point. But, but I do think the right leaders bringing people together and eschewing identity politics is how you get out of this moment. Am I worried that identity politics is being played by the right and the left, which will make this worse and could lead to violence? Yes, I am worried about that very much so. Um, but that's why I want to, I think we need to do everything we can to try and get rid of identity politics, which, which both sides had been playing and get behind political leaders who, who, who can get us past that moment. And it starts with demanding politicians who want to do that. Politics is a supply and demand game. Politicians have been supplying demagoguery and divisiveness because people have been polarizing, demanding it. So the question is, can we revive civil society and those things in our society that, that demand among politicians to stop the polarization, get stuff done, unify people? I believe that there is some polarization fatigue setting in that demands that, given that our problems have gone unsolved. So I'm, a, I'm, a, just a, I'm, a, I'm always an optimistic person. I do think we get through there. But we're being tested in ways we've never done before because we've never had these digital challenges like the founders never predicted. But they did write in, this, in, the, pop, in, the, in the Federalist Papers and others that demagogues will come around. They'll come and go. But we've got a constitution to keep us from, from succumbing to their whims. And so as, so long as we don't change our constitution um, and stick to it, I think we're going to be okay. Well, it comes down to a word you've used many times uh, in this conversation, which has been in a little bit of short supply, and that is leadership. Um, so uh, we'll see what comes. We'll see what comes next. So, Paul Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always great to have a conversation. I appreciate the wide-ranging nature of what you uh, talk about. Um, and uh, thanks for a very engaging conversation. All right, you bet, Kevin. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. And thank all of you for joining us again today. We'll be back again soon with the next edition of Taneo Insights. And until then, I'm Kevin Kajiwara in New York. Have a great day. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajiwara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at taneoinsights at taneo.com. See you next time.